The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to be here with all of you. Always, always a pleasure to interact with you on these streams. Should be an interesting conversation. Yet another one of our late night conversations. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, we'll just have a lot of fun here like we always do. Should be great. So I guess we will just jump into things. Uh, yeah. Of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, is just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything we always is everything we put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Hey, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. So for those of you who may be new and don't know how this works, uh, the way it works is I give my opening remarks. While I give my opening remarks, uh, our great volunteer, Don D from NYC, uh, he will be writing down your super chat questions. I'll try to put them on the screen as I see them. So those super chat questions will be coming in. Um, and then after the super chat questions come in, um, we'll be doing that. I'll do the roll call names and locations. I'll call you out as I see you. And then the final part of the show, the final half of the show, sometimes it goes way longer than half is just me answering your questions. Um, and so that's the rest of the program, is me answering your super chat questions. So if there's something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, by all means, shoot me a super chat. Uh, Don D will be writing them down during the first half. I'll continue writing them down in the second half. That's how we're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. If you can tweet this out, that would be great. If you can post this in a Facebook group, that would be great. I'm now on Truth Social. Believe it or not, I am now on Donald Trump's app, Truth Social. So if you want to put this out on Truth Social, Truth Social, by all means, do so. Put it out on Truth Social. Put it out on Truth Social. Um, we are on all different apps, Facebook, Twitter, etc. If you want to put this on your Reddit, um, you know, put this on your Reddit, put this on your, you know, Facebook, put this on your Instagram, wherever you want to put things, that would be awesome. Couple quick announcements. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, uh, we are having the National Gathering of the Center for Political Innovation, June 22nd through 26th, a four-day uh, training uh, that's going to go on, kind of a communist summer camp, uh, four-day national gathering uh, that'll be happening in a rural area in Kansas. Uh, so if you're a member of the Center for Political Innovation, keep a, a lookout for the invitation that you are about to receive. It should probably come out tomorrow. Lily Goldklang is going to be the retreat coordinator. Uh, she is the person you'll be RSVPing and getting back to about attending the retreat. So that'll be pretty cool. Other news. It appears the Chicago conference is back on. 
I have to coordinate with the Chicago people about what date would be ideal for it. But it appears uh, that we will be doing a conference in Chicago. We're looking at early August, possibly, for the date. So that's a pretty good development. Oh, but back to the National Gathering. Um, great development. So I, I had a great chat this afternoon uh, with the amazing folk singer, David Rovix. David Rovix, the amazing folk singer. I uh, wrote the song for the St. Patrick's Battalion. Uh, wrote the song for John Brown, uh, did the comedy classic, I'm a Better Anarchist Than You, Failed State, uh, Prison Walls for Julian Assange. And apparently, David Rovix, David Rovix will be attending the retreat, uh, and he will be performing at the retreat. So that's going to be awesome. He will be our musical entertainment. That's going to be great. So if you don't want to come out and hear me talk, uh, you can come and hear David Rovix uh, play some great music. There'll be some other presenters at the retreat as well. It's going to be a great four days in the summertime. It's going to be awesome. So if you're a CPI member, uh, that would be awesome. If you want to join the Center for Political Innovation, all you have to do is go to cpiusa.org, um, and you can easily become a full-paying, full dues-paying member of the organization. You'll then be invited to the national retreat. Uh, so it's going to be pretty awesome. It's going to be great. Um, I hope that, uh, that folks will be able to be there because it's going to be awesome. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and hit the notifications bell. Now, uh, I'm going to get into my opening remarks. So what I wanted to talk about for my opening remarks um, today, for those of you who may not be aware, I am married. Uh, I am married, uh, and uh, my eighth wedding anniversary is actually today. Uh, but since I have to work, uh, you know, during the week, um, my wife and I celebrated on Sunday, and it was great. And uh, one thing that we often will do, uh, you know, for our wedding anniversary is we'll have a nice dinner someplace, and we'll go and see a Broadway show. That's one thing we'll do. Now, this year, we actually didn't see a Broadway show. We saved a couple bucks, and we saw an off-Broadway show. Uh, we went, and we saw an off-Broadway show up on 50th Avenue at the New World Theaters. It's like this theater complex in a basement. My wife and I, uh, we saved a buck or two and we saw a new musical that's showing not on Broadway, but off Broadway. It was something we did. And uh, that got me thinking about the politics of Broadway musicals because, you know, we, we don't make a plan. We just kind of go and we see, you know, we go to the place where you can buy tickets cheap, you know, same day, you know, we, we get in that line underneath the red stairs and we do that thing. It's just something something to do that we can do. Uh, and so, um, you know, we were thinking, what should we go see? Should we go see Aladdin? No, we didn't want to go see Aladdin. Should we go see Book of Mormon? No, we didn't want to see Book of Mormon. So my wife and I, uh, we ended up going and seeing a new musical called Americano. Americano, it's called. And it's very funny, right? I mean, you know, think about it for a minute. Now, if I told you that there was going to be a musical on Broadway. There was a musical on Broadway that was loaded with patriotism. It was a, a, a super patriotic musical. And one of the recurring themes in the musical is that the hero, his whole life goal is to join the U.S. Marine Corps. And that's the, the musical centers around the idea that he's going to join the U.S. Marine Corps. And on top of that, he becomes a political activist. You would think that this would probably be a right-wing musical, right? Uh, you would be wrong, however. This was this musical, I mean, it was entertaining, uh, but it was very much an ad for the U.S. military, and it was very much an ad for one of the major political parties in the United States. And that political party 
was the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. Uh, it was aimed at, at Latinos. Uh, it was a musical about the DACA kids and the DREAM Act. Uh, it was very, very pro-U.S. military. Uh, it was very, very pro-Democratic Party. Um, yeah, it was aimed at the Latino community. Uh, you know, it's about a young man who discovers that he is not a not a U.S. citizen, uh, and they can't join the Marine Corps, which is his life's dream, and his girlfriend, who he's always wanted to join the Marine Corps with, she goes and joins the Marine Corps on her own, and, and he has no choice, and so he becomes a Democratic Party activist uh, to get out the vote among Latinos uh, in, in his home state. I mean, it's particularly right-wing, but I guess that's left-wing now, right? I mean, this is the Democrats, right? It's the Democratic Party. It's anti-racism. It's for the rights of immigrant workers. It's for Latinos in defense of the Spanish-speaking community. It's against Republican and conservative governors. It's funny, though. This is left-wing. It's left-wing. Um, you know, there was one line in the musical that just made me turn to my wife and roll my eyes, uh, you know, where, you know, the I, I guess, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, folks. At one point, you know, his girlfriend who goes to Iraq gets killed. And so he's like talking to the ghost of his girlfriend. And she says, you know, I died for what you're doing over there. I died to protect, protect a village and show people that America wants to make the world a better place. And it's like, do you really think the USA invaded Iraq to make the world a better place? Good night. Um, and uh, it was particularly, uh, particularly, interesting i guess i mean it was an entertaining show and it was good to see what's out there right um you know i've talked before with different people dust james and i have talked about how dust kind of stood alone as a section of the immigrant rights uh movement uh, that opposed the dream act seeing it as basically a, a pentagon recruitment operation and but there were some in the immigrant rights movement who said look the, the dream act if you look at the you know the essence of it it's not good um but regardless uh, regardless you know one thing that has always annoyed me is when people have shallow analysis of art. It's always annoyed me. When there's, there's shallow analysis of art. Always been a pet, pet peeve of mine, right? Um, trying to think of examples of it, of, of shallow analysis of art. When people are not really digging into what it says, right? Um, you know, I think Mao said that if you want to know what a pear tastes like, you must bite into it. And that is very, very, very true. If you want to know what a pear tastes like, you've got to bite into it. And that just pointing out that this musical, which which is very, very, you know, pro-U.S. establishment, just pointing out that, okay, it's, it's patriotic, it's supporting the U.S. military, it's supporting the Democratic Party, it's channeling the Latino community into supporting the military and supporting the Democratic Party. Just doing that is not thorough analysis. There's more going on there. Right. Um, I think it says a lot more about fighting within the ruling class. Um, you know, that's really what it's about. And this feeling that, uh, you know, that the Latino community feels like they're under siege uh, with the anti-immigrant bigotry that's going on and with the Trump, uh, you know, Trump hysteria. The Democratic Party feels like it can use the immigrant community against uh, the Trump people. Also, um, you know, I was reminded of the uh, the movie that came out a few years ago, straight out of Compton. Uh, straight out of Compton, uh, because if you notice, one big theme in that is that, you know, the hope for an oppressed person from an oppressed community, whether it's an African-American or a Latino immigrant, is that they can be discovered and become useful to somebody in the power structure. And that seems to be a big theme in this as well, right? The idea being that if you're, uh, if you're an oppressed person, somebody, 
you know, in the power structure will see that you are suffering and find your narrative to be useful. Uh, and that's your hope. It reminds me of the, the record producer who finds the young rap artists and straight out of Compton. That, that seemed to be a theme as well. Um, so I, I, I thought that was interesting. But when I talk about shallow political analysis, and this is what I really want to get to on this stream, because I'm going to talk about a lot of different Broadway shows. But, you know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was taking a class on Marxism at uh, New York University, at NYU. And I asked him, you know, what they were reading in his class called Marxism. I think it was called Marxism and Society, something like that. And I assumed they'd be reading the Communist Manifesto, the Poverty of Philosophy, the Critique of the Goethe Program. But no, no, that's not what they were reading. Um, what they were reading in his class on Marxism and society, uh, they were reading novels. Uh, they read Dracula. And I said, I said, why are you reading Dracula in your class on Marxism? And he said, well, we had a discussion about how Dracula is a parasite and he lives by sucking the blood of other people, and that's like a capitalist. And I heard that, and I, again, this is very surface-level analysis. Very, very surface-level analysis. Is it true? Yes. Dracula, vampires are parasites. They do exploit their victims. But you could say about any vampire book, any vampire movie. That's what it's going to be about. But if you read the Victorian novel Dracula, published by Bram Stoker. There is so much more there than just he's a parasite. And I don't think Bram Stoker intended for Dracula to be an analogy for capitalism. Dracula was written in the late 1800s when imperialism was in, in ascendancy. It was written by a, uh, an Irishman, Bram Stoker, uh, who worked in London, the capital of global imperialism at that time, the center of global imperialism. And he was a play producer. He worked in theater in the London's theater district. And he had the idea to write this novel about a vampire, Dracula. Um, and um, so he wrote this novel. And uh, Dracula has a lot to say about what's going on at that time. First things first, the most obvious thing on the surface is the Victorian era was an era of intense sexual repression. Right? There was a huge public relations campaign back then telling people don't masturbate. Uh, there was a huge effort to contain women's sexuality, to crack down on anything that might be sexually appealing. You know, It was a big part of British culture during that time. It was this really big, they were putting curtains over the piano legs because people thought the piano legs looked like human legs and they might turn somebody on. Huge, huge crackdown on sexuality. So Dracula. Is about as close as you can get to porn in that time, right? If you wrote erotic stories, they might throw you in jail because that was just utterly disgusting. But Dracula, you have beautiful women, beautiful young women who are sleeping in bed at night. And then this man breaks in and pricks them with his fangs. And if you look at what Dracula does in the novels, it's much more graphic than simply biting them. At one point, he was like, he's piercing holes in his chests and making the women suck the blood from it, obviously hinting at something else that people do, which I'm not going to get into detail about. But it's porn, and it's, it's rape porn. It's sadomasochistic rape porn, right? He can't write a novel about a man breaking into women's apartments and raping them. 
So instead, he writes a novel about a vampire breaking into their apartments and biting them and forcing them to suck his blood in great detail. Um, so there's that. On the surface level, it's, it's very clearly about as close to pornography as you could get away with at that time. And people knew that at the time. It was considered to be very, very, very vulgar, right? Um, on top of that, where is Dracula from? Dracula is from Romania, Transylvania, a region of Romania. And what was going on at that time? Eastern Europe was being colonized by the British. The British were exerting economic domination over Eastern European countries like Romania. And the idea, there was a lot of stereotyping of Russians, of, of, you know, of Lithuanians, of Hungarians. People from Eastern Europe were considered to be barbarians. They were considered to be scary, monstrous, you know, people. So Dracula, the way he's portrayed in the novel, is he's got a huge beard. He's got a beard. He's a wild, wild creature from Romania. And how does he get to Britain? To you know, he gets to Britain because Jonathan Harker, a British capitalist, is going over to Romania to buy up the land, right? He's an imperialist. He's coming in and dominating. It's the export of capital. Jonathan Harker, the real estate imperialist, the wealthy British capitalist, the gentleman, goes over to this uncivilized territory of Romania to purchase land and all of that, ends up going to Castle Dracula. Dracula's this Romanian uh, noble he's supposed to make a deal with. He doesn't realize he's a vampire. And Dracula uses his train tickets or whatever and gets back to Britain. So it's the fear of reverse colonialism, right? And this is what Nietzsche, you know, this is the Marxist interpretation of Nietzsche. If you read George Lukacs, right? It's the idea that as the, you know, capitalism is entering its monopoly stage of imperialism, you see the, the pretenses of being civilized, being stripped away. And the idea is the, the imperialists are becoming more and more ruthless. All of a sudden, they're committing atrocities that are horrendous. And the idea is that, uh, that we're going over to the developing world and we're proving that we are the superior man. We're proving that we're the ubermensch by engaging in cruel, barbaric activities. We're doing that, um, you know, and, and the fear is that someone will turn around and do to us what we've done to them. Um, that's the idea. So, so the idea is that as the British are colonizing and taking over and, you know, putting economic domination over Eastern Europe, some kind of, you know, brute, strong, scary, sexy man, you know, with a beard, a big, strong Eastern European guy is going to come back to England and start breaking into the apartments of the women and, and I mean, the whole thing is very, very loaded with political implications. And of course, what do they, what is Dracula afraid of? It's the cross, right? It's the cross. It's, it's anything Christian is what he's terrified of. So it's like, you know, with the crucifixes and the cross, with the Christian values, they're going to tame the beast, right? There's all kinds of politics in Dracula, right? It's, it's sexual repression. Uh, it's colonization of Eastern Europe and the fear of reverse colonialism. The imperialists become bestial and fearing that, that, you know, that people will do to them what's doing, what they're doing to others. They're going to Eastern Europe and exploiting the people horrifically, you know, et cetera. And they're fearing that, that somebody from Eastern Europe will come back. That's a really common theme in horror stories, et cetera. 
Plus, there's this longing for the good old days. It's almost like Charles Dickens longing for the Christian values of the pre-capitalist era. Oh, can't we all just be nice? You know, we can make the beast go away with our crosses and with our Bibles. That's what Dracula is about, right? It's it's very much, you know, it's 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 about the Victorian era. It's about capitalism moving into its imperialist monopoly stage. That's a deep analysis of Dracula. But if your Marxist analysis of Dracula is Dracula lives by sucking blood, he's a capitalist, that's just surface level. That's just surface level. And that's why, you know, if I had just said, oh, you know, Americano, reactionary, pro-military, pro-democratic party, I would be missing the point. I would be missing the point. Um, I'd be completely missing the point if I had just, you, you have to see what these things are saying. So that said, I'm going to go over a key, a few of the key Broadway musicals that have gone on in American history. Uh, and I'm going to tell you what I think more or less they're saying in the context of the time when they were popular. And you can agree with me or disagree with me. That's fine. Um, but I'm just going to tell you. Now, first of all, first things first. Um, first things first. If you know anything about Broadway musicals, the name the names Rogers and Hammerstein are going to be important to you, right? They are considered the, you know, the most successful, you know, lyricist and music composition duo. Richard Rogers wrote the music and Oscar Hammerstein wrote the lyrics and the the scripts. Uh and they were they were considered, they kind of defined Broadway from like the 1930s up until the 1960s, right? All the big musicals that we associate with that time period, that's Rodgers and Hammerstein. And Broadway really got going in the 1930s. I mean, that's when Broadway really became what it is today. Uh, you know, this kind of, this, this important place that people go and see musicals. And so many musicals are Rodgers and Hammerstein. The first big musical that Rodgers and Hammerstein did, their first major hit was called Oklahoma. And Oklahoma, at the time that it came out in 1931, Oklahoma was a smash hit. There had never been any theatrical performance in American history that people had had liked so much. Uh, it was it was it was something legendary. They did things on the stage that had never been done before. For example, um, at one point in the musical Oklahoma, uh, the woman uh, the woman is given a magical scent. She sniffs it and she falls asleep. And there's a dream sequence with all kinds of wild dancing and stuff. No one had ever done that before on Broadway. Had a dream sequence where all of a sudden there's a bunch of wild dancing. Um, I mean, it was it really changed American theater like you never had seen before. And people piled in and bought tickets to watch it. And it's a hokey, hokey musical. You watch it now. It's this silly musical about cowboys, cowboys. And, um, you know, it's about Oklahoma becoming a state. What's interesting is I bet you didn't know this, but the state of Oklahoma has actually adopted the, the song, the theme song of the musical o Oklahoma is actually their state song. Did you know that? Oklahoma. The title song of the musical Oklahoma is actually the state song of the state of Oklahoma. I think that's particularly wild. But 1931, that's the Great Depression in the United States. That's about a year into the Great Depression. It was uh, November 1929 when the U.S. stock market crashed in 1930. 1931, we're about a year into the Great Depression. Mass unemployment, mass hunger. 
Roosevelt hasn't been elected yet. Um, and things are not good in the country. And if you watch Oklahoma, it is very much in the flavor of a lot of the art and a lot of the propaganda that was being disseminated in the United States at the very beginning of the Great Depression. It didn't last, but it was at the very beginning. The most popular song in the United States during the early years of the Great Depression was The Happy Days Are Here Again. The Happy Days Are Here Again. And the reason that song was so popular uh, was because people were saying this economic crisis has got to end. People are starving on the streets. People are dying. You know, they're finding dead bodies of starved people. I mean, it was like the Great Depression, the level of desperate poverty, you know, that was was seen. I mean, the masses of millions of unemployed people was particularly bad. Furthermore, Oklahoma. The U.S. state of Oklahoma, what was that the site of? Well, go read the Grapes of Wrath. That was the Dust Bowl, right? That was the, the agricultural sector of the state collapsed. Um, and thank you, Joe. Uh, I mean, if there was any place that really got screwed during the Great Depression, it was Oklahoma. Oklahoma just completely fell apart. All kinds of people, um, you know, all kinds of people just completely, you know, completely were destitute. Farmers were losing out. People were fleeing the state. It was a, it was a disaster. Uh, but that's not what you see in the musical Oklahoma. The musical Oklahoma, You've got all these frontier people, all these cowboys in this area that's eventually going to come become a state called Oklahoma. Um, and it's going to become a state and they're struggling to remain optimistic and they're struggling to get along. And that's, that's really what the musical is all about. The, the message is keep a positive attitude, keep a positive attitude and Americans, we've got to pull together and we're going to get through the Great Depression. Uh, and I think that it's, it's like the negative side of Roosevelt. It was setting the stage for Roosevelt's first term, which wasn't a very good... I mean, Roosevelt didn't start doing progressive reforms really until the very end of his first term. But the first years that Roosevelt was in office, there was a lot of Bonapartist maneuvering to try and stabilize the economy that didn't benefit the working class. Um, and a lot of it involved screwing over the farmers. Uh, Nelson Peary, in his autobiography, uh, he talks about how when his family, they were, you know, there were very few African-American farmers in, in, uh, in the country at that time. And he was in Minnesota and his family, they were African-Americans and they owned a farm. Uh, and one of Roosevelt's policies was to kill half the cows in the country. Did you know this? Roosevelt killed half the cows in the country because the price of beef was sinking because of overproduction. People couldn't afford to buy beef. People couldn't afford to buy beef. And because of that, um, you know, the price of beef was sinking because Americans couldn't afford to buy it. And so in order to make the price of beef go up and bail out the farming industry, they sent the U.S. Department of Agriculture out and they killed half of the cows in the country. So they went to all the major farms and they killed half the cows. And the cows that got killed, they then buried them and they put lime on the cows so that no one could dig them up and eat them. The idea was there would be a short that would create a scarcity. The price of beef would go up. Now, for some huge rancher that has hundreds of cows, now well, it's not the end of the world. The cows he's got, the price of them will double, so he'll be okay. But for Nelson Peary's family, an African-American family that has like, you know, five cows, killing half of them, that's, that's 
half of their capital, right? And that's food. That's, I mean, you know, and he said it was horrifying. His family stands there, you know, and then, you know, these, you know, these federal agents show up and they're like, we're killing half of your cattle. Um, we're killing half of your cattle and, uh, we're going to, you know, not only are we going to kill them, but we're going to make sure you don't eat them. We're going to, you know, bury them and put lime all over them. So if you eat them, you'll, you'll get ill and die. Um, and we're going to do that. Um, you know, and, and his family stood there in horror. I mean, that was like half of their wealth being taken away from them. I mean, the, you know, I mean, every one of those cows was money that they had, money that they had, that was potential food that they had. It was a, an economic disaster for his family. And there were a lot of policies like that. In the opening years of the Roosevelt administration, it was very much this, this, you know, we're going to try and stabilize the economy with the National Industrial Recovery Act. Um, but it was a lot, in a lot of cases, they were preaching shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. But it was bullshit. It was the working class that were being screwed. Um, and, and there were many examples of that in the early years of the Roosevelt administration. It wasn't until Roosevelt, you know, until Roosevelt faced the military coup, the business plot, and the strike wave of 1934, after that, Roosevelt started aligning with the labor movement and kind of a strategic alliance against the industrial capitalists. There was a divide in the ruling class. But at that point, you know, in the early years of the Roosevelt administration, he was very much fighting for fighting to stabilize the economy at the expense of the workers while preaching this vague patriotism. We're all in this together, guys. You know, they had the Blue Eagle that was the symbol of the National Recovery Act. It was the Blue Eagle. And children in school pledged allegiance, not just to the flag of the United States, but to the Blue Eagle, the National Recovery Act. The, you know, and that there was this, this weird attempt to create national unity to solve the economic crisis. But the Communist Party, they, they said it's bullshit, right? It's the workers that are having to, to pay for it. And, and the, the capitalists are not the ones making any sacrifices. And so the communists, instead of supporting Roosevelt... They went and went out and organized the unemployment councils, and they organized the hunger marches, and and the, you know the bonus march, and and they you know they said fighters starve. You know during the early 1930s, the Communist Party hated Roosevelt. They thought he was a fascist. They were in the streets against him. They were calling for class against class, etc. Now you know later that changed with the Popular Front, but Oklahoma, if you watch it in 1931, the message is you know we're all in this together. Keep a good attitude. And we're going to have that pioneer spirit and we're going to get through these hard times. The villain is an incel, which I think is hilarious. That was not a term that existed back then. But the villain, Judd Fry, uh, is a man who uh, feels that he is not good looking enough to get a girlfriend. And he feels lonely and resents that. And as a result of his loneliness um, and his jealousy, uh, the fact that women don't like him, he becomes murderous. And... The point is that Judd Fry has fallen into a pit of destructive pessimism. He's having a bad attitude. But the hero, Curly, he's got a positive attitude. There's one particular song that if you listen to the lyrics very carefully, it really kind of expresses what they're trying to say more than anything. There's, the, there's a whole long, complicated thing. The farmer and the cowman should be friends. And it goes on and on and on, right? And it's this, this long dance number about how cowboys and farmers shouldn't fight with each other because we're all, we should all be getting along and we should have the spirit of the community. Uh, you know, you know, it's about shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. That, that's the message, right? I believe there's a, a line in it. Um, what is it says? Um, you know, the line is, I don't say I'm no better than anybody else, but I'll be damned if I ain't just as good. Right. And it was about urging people to not be elitist, urging people to not be 
grumbling, not fight with other people, going to have national unity to get through this economic crisis. That's what Oklahoma is saying. Um, and it makes sense in the context of the time. Um, you know, it was, it was the bad, the bad side of Roosevelt. The happy days are here again, but you got to keep a good attitude. Don't be like Judd Fry who becomes all negative and destructive. Keep a good attitude. The farmers and the cowboys should be friends. You know, uh, it, it's very much, that's what, that's what Oklahoma is saying. It, and it's the pioneer spirit. It's uber patriotic. You know, of course, no mention of the fact the land they're on is being stolen from Native Americans. You know, it's all this uber patriotic men belong to the land, etc. That's what it's saying. Right. And it expressed kind of the the surge of government propaganda that the USA was getting um, at the time. Uh, that's more or less what it was saying. Now, what I think is interesting. so. You know, it's been revealed, you know, later, as we talked about, in the 1930s, you had the Great Depression, and in the early 1930s, the Communist Party became the champion of the unemployed. They said, fight or starve, don't starve, fight. Uh, they built the unemployment councils, they, you know, they, they went out and they fought, and there was the, the 1934 strike wave. In the summer of 1934, you had a strike in Minneapolis, led by the, the truck drivers and the Teamsters, and in, in San Francisco in 1934, you had the San Francisco strike led by the dock workers and the Communist Party. And then in Toledo, Ohio, you had the auto light strike uh, that was led by the communists and the American Workers Party. Three major cities shut down by strikes. Uh, then you also have on top of that, South Carolina has declared a state of emergency because the sharecroppers are on strike organized by the Communist Party. Um, it's quite an explosive year in American history. Um, Hitler comes to power in Germany. Uh, and, you know, at that point, 1935, the Communist International reorients its policy toward building a united front against fascism, right? And so the Communist Party, they're going to defend democracy from the fascist threat. Roosevelt feels that he's in danger of being overthrown. There's an attempted military coup against Roosevelt called the Business Plot that's revealed in congressional testimony. So Roosevelt suddenly goes from being this kind of bullshit, fake, you know, Bonapartist, I guess you can call it, but not in a good way. He suddenly becomes like a populist and Roosevelt starts hiring the unemployed with the Works Progress Administration uh, and he passes unemployment insurance and he passes all kinds of progressive reforms. He's reelected in 1936, even though the majority of the capitalist class is against him, but he's in a strategic block with the Communist Party. After he's elected, the capitalists retaliate by having mass layoffs, and so workers start occupying their factories. You have the sit-down strike wave. Roosevelt supports it and sends the military to defend. This is a, a fight in the ruling class, and this is the Popular Front period. And what you'll notice is during the Popular Front period, you know, on Broadway, it became completely acceptable to be a, you know, to be a communist, right? Um, you know, and Lillian Hellman, uh, the American playwright, she was a Broadway playwright. Um, she was married to Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett is the guy who wrote The Maltese Falcon, the detective story. Um, and she wrote, at, during that period, she wrote the first Broadway play about gay rights. It's called The Children's Hour. It's about two lesbians, about a couple that are, are, are accused of being lesbians. Uh, they, they run an orphanage together. And they're accused of being lesbians and it destroys their, their business because they're accused of being lesbians. Um, and then the one woman actually admits she does love the other woman. Uh, you know, she does have lesbian feelings for the other woman and commits suicide. It's very sad. It's like the first Broadway play supporting LGBT rights. Um, and, you know, a lot of Broadway actors and stuff in the late 1930s are, are sympathetic to the Communist Party, in the Communist Party, etc. 
Now, what's interesting, and, and the Communist Party during the late 1930s, they're kind of toning things down, right? During the early 1930s, you had to give the whole of your life to being in the party. You know, you had to work in a job with other people that were in the party. You couldn't just have a normal job. You had to work in a factory where there were at least five other party members. So you were in a party cell. You know, you had to give, you know, the whole of your life. But in the late 1930s, the Communist Party, this is the Earl Browder period where Earl Browder, um, you know, Earl Browder kind of ascends into leadership and the Communist Party kind of seems a little less radical. They focus on aligning with Roosevelt against fascism. They focus on really playing up American patriotism. And it's during this period that, you know, Oscar Hammerstein of Rogers and Hammerstein, he apparently joined some communist front organizations, some communist party USA aligned groups. Uh, one of the main ones he joined was the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, right? The Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. And he joins it um, because he he's anti-Nazi. And it's, again, it's communist party aligned organizations like the, uh, what is it? I think the, the, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the writers against war and fascism and the, um, the American youth for democracy and, you know, these kind of popular front groups that, that vaguely kind of support progress, anti-racism, you know, kind of the ideals of the Roosevelt administration, anti-fascism, anti-racism, fighting for democracy, supporting labor unions. I mean, Half of Broadway, half of Hollywood is in these groups. And yeah, Oscar Hammerstein apparently did join at least the main group that he joined that was Communist Party aligned was the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, right? I mean, and he joined that. And apparently after World War II, he was investigated by the House on american Activities Committee and the FBI for the fact that he'd been part of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. Um, but unlike a lot of people, he... He didn't stick with it. As soon as World War II was over, Oscar Hammerstein just completely, you know, whatever. He he was, you know, anti-communist. He was never a radical. And that's one thing about Rodgers and Hammerstein, and, and especially about Broadway. They just want to make money, right? They, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, they might take a stand here because it'll sell tickets, and they might do some moralistic chest beating because the kind of people who who watch Broadway shows can feel self-righteous and go to them. At the end of the day, they're just they just want to make money, right? I mean, you look how many how many Broadway musicals are there these days that are based on like Hollywood movies? And didn't they have like a, I mean, Legally Blonde the musical and stuff like that? I and mean, they just want to make money, right? They want to get tourist butts butts in the seats, um, you know, etc. So so you know, Oscar Hammerstein. You know, he was not really radical. Um, you know, he did not take any hard stands during McCarthyism. He didn't make any sacrifices. However, you know, another big piece he did. 1959, Roger, Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, they did The Sound of Music. 1959. Now, McCarthyism was pretty much done at that point, right? Uh, McCarthyism... 1948 is the eye of the storm. That's when the Communist Party leaders are all thrown in prison. 1951, the McCarran Internal Security Act. McCarthyism starts to die down in 1954 uh, with, with the beginnings of the civil rights movement, the lynching of Emmett Till, the protests, the Montgomery bus boycott. With the death of Stalin, 56, you have the Khrushchev revelations, 1957. The Supreme Court says, all right, the Communist Party's legal. You know, I mean, you know, Things started toning down by 1959. By 1959, McCarthyism was, you know, it was, it was on its way out, right? You know, you're setting the stage for Kennedy to get elected. Well, 1959 is the year that The Sound of Music comes out. 
And the sound of music, that's, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's, you know, it's like, it's like it, people compare it to Rocky Horror Picture Show. They have showings of the sound of music where people come dressed up as nuns or, you know, people say the lines while they're saying the movie. It's a lot of people's favorite movie. A lot of people say that the movie version of the sound of music is their favorite movie. It's an iconic piece of, you know, American, you know, theater, American musical, American whatever. There are references to McCarthyism in uh, The Sound of Music, but I'm not going to give them credit for that. I'm going to say they're late to the show. If they had made The Sound of Music in 1954, that would have been very, very courageous. They'd made The Sound of Music in 1951, that would have been very, very courageous. At that point, 1959, everyone's talking that way, right? The Twilight Zone is on TV and... And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, they're starting to hire back, um, they're starting to hire back Hollywood uh, blacklisted writers and, and, you know, things are changing. McCarthyism is on its way out. But there's, there's references to McCarthyism in The Sound of Music, especially in the stage version. Um, there's a song that was cut from the musical. Uh, it's called There's No Way to Stop It. Um, and it's basically the, the father in... The Sound of Music is a virulent anti-Nazi, this Austrian guy who's very anti-Nazi, um, very anti-Nazi, and his rich friends, he's, he's also very wealthy, his rich friends are just saying, eh, it doesn't matter, there's nothing you can do about it, there's no reason to take a stand, um, and, um, you know, and they're, they're portrayed as being kind of indifferent to the suffering of others. He's taking a moral stand, and they're they're not. And it's called There's No Way to Stop It. They cut it from the movie, right? But it, that was definitely taking a political stand about people, you know, and McCarthyism sitting by. And probably the main reference to McCarthyism in The, the Sound of Music, more than anything, um, is, the, uh, is the fact that, you know, there's this whole subplot about, you know, the, one of the girls is dating a guy who joins the Hitler Youth, and he doesn't turn them in. Right. It's he has the courage not to turn her in because they're friends. Right. You stick up for your friend. And so when they're running away from from Austria, you know, her her boyfriend, you know, her boyfriend or whatever, who's part of the Hitler youth, sees them when they're hiding and doesn't turn them in. And it's like, don't rat out your friends before the House on american Activities Committee, basically, is what it's saying. It's about McCarthyism. Right. It's don't rat out your friends. Take a political stand. Pick the hill you want to die on. Don't just surrender. That's what it's about more than anything, right? Um, and so there's references to McCarthyism in The Sound of Music. So, but I still, at the end of the day, Oscar Hammerstein, was he some kind of radical? No, right? I mean, you know, I mean, again, at that point, the country is moving into Cold War liberalism. McCarthyism has faded. It's not a heroic, it's not like some epic stance. Just like Oklahoma is pushing shared sacrifice at a time of the Great Depression. At a time people in Oklahoma are literally starving to death. He's making a musical about how great Oklahoma is and happy days are here again and Americans have all got to pull together and don't have an attitude, don't be a pessimist. It, that's 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 Broadway, right? And that's that's how it's kind of like Hollywood. It's like people say Hollywood is left wing. People say Broadway is left wing. It's not socially conservative because people want things that are kind of scandalous. But it's also it's not pushing a Marxist agenda. It's not revolutionary. It's you know there it, it it's very much and yeah, it's Broadway and Hollywood are very very much you know liberal in the sense of not conservative, not right wing questioning the status quo. And you, you have to do that in art. You have to do things that have never been done before. I think that's important. Um, so that, speaking of Hollywood being liberal and Broadway being liberal, that brings me to um, a musical that actually at one point in my life, if you'd met me when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with this musical, Hair. You ever heard of Hair? 1968, 
Hair, the musical Hair comes out. Um, James Rado and Jerry Ragney and what is it? Michael McDermott. They did this, this Broadway musical called Hair. Um, and Hair, on the surface of it, is a very left-wing musical, right? It's got, you got the Age of Aquarius, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, you know, Let the Sun Shine In, and it's this hippie musical. Hair, if you really look at what it's saying, it's really, really dark. It is really dark and it is really pessimistic. You got to get past the surface level, right? It's a lot of jokes. There's, you know, nudity. The, the Broadway play was famous for having a new, you know, all the cast walking out naked at the very end of the first act. Um, it's supporting anti-war protesters, but it's a really dark and pessimistic piece of music. It's really dark. Um, uh, if you look at hair, it's basically a human sacrifice. I'm not joking, right? It's, you know, it's called the American tribal love rock musical. Uh, the, the leading character is a, a guy who gets a draft notice and doesn't want to fight in Vietnam. And he's morally, he doesn't know what to do, but he ultimately goes to fight in Vietnam and he comes out and there's like, it's like, it's some kind of like human sacrifice. I mean, they're, you know, throughout the play, they're playing drums, they're taking him around, they give him drugs, they're dancing with him. And at the end he dies and they carry him out on a funeral pyre. I mean, they, they march him out in like a funeral procession. It's very dark. It's extremely dark. Um, and it's promoting drug use. It's promoting pessimism. Uh, there's a whole long LSD sequence. Um, and it, it's kind of saying there's no point in life and the country's falling apart and there is no hope. Um, so use drugs. Um, that's, I mean, it's, it's really, there's nothing optimistic about it, right? Um, um, at one point in the play, uh, you know, uh, everyone feels sorry for the guy because he's going to have to go fight in Vietnam. So I think they're all putting pressure on one of the women to have sex with him, even though she doesn't want to, which is pretty disturbing, uh, you know, and, you know, pretty not cool. Um, you know, uh, and like, yeah, they they start pressuring, they start pressuring the, the girl to have sex with him. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, um, it's, it's particularly dark and, um, you know, the lyrics, I mean, you know, you, you read, I mean, it's, it, it, it has this kind of vaguely positive, happy tone to it, but the more you get down to it, it's very dark and it's very much a narco primitivist. It's glorifying the native Americans, it's a bunch of white people pretending to be native Americans. Um, you know, um, it's a bunch of white people pretending to be native Americans saying that the United States is a dying country. You got this young draftee who doesn't want to go. And he ends up going anyway, and then he dies. And that's what it's about. I mean, it's, it's very, very dark. Um, it's very dark. It's very pessimistic. And, uh, you know, I mean, and that's it's what's weird is because, you know, I associate socialism with happiness. I associate socialism with the world marching ahead. There's no class struggle in it. It's not that, like, the workers are dying for the capitalist corporation. It's not that at all. It's it's this kind of like alienation. I want to be an individual. I don't want to, I don't want to be in an army and wear a uniform like everybody else. And it's this very, 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 it's about middle-class alienation from militarized U.S. society, wanting to go back to nature, drug use, sexual promiscuity. It's a very, very, very dark 
dark piece of theater. Um, the movie is a piece of crap. The, the, the play itself is fascinating. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, it's dark, but it's fascinating, right? I mean, if you get a copy of the script, um, it's a fascinating piece of literature because it is it has a lot to say. The movie is just a complete waste of your time. It has absolutely nothing to do with, with the play. It's just, it's just silliness. The movie is really, I've, I've never been as disappointed as I was when I watched the movie of Hair. Um, because I had read the script and I listened to the music. And then as a teenager, I watched, I got the VHS tape and I watched the, the musical, the movie hair. And I was like, what the hell is this? Um, you know, it was just, it was such a disappointment because the play itself is saying quite a bit. Um, but looking back on it, I realized it's a, it's not saying good things, particularly it's, it's particularly pessimistic. So that's hair. Um, but you know, I mean, hair was a sensation at the time, right? You've got the age of Aquarius, Good morning, Starshine. Oh, there's a million, you know, hit songs from Hair. So anyway, um, which brings me to what at the time, and this is kind of fascinating, right? This is one of the big musicals that was that's very big. Uh, the the movie of this musical, I would say, was much bigger than the musical itself. 1978, you had the movie version of Grease, starring John Travolta. Um, that was huge, right? Um, but the movie of Greece is very different than the Broadway play. So at the time, like 1969, 1970, 1971, hippies are the big thing among middle-class young people, right? Among middle-class young people whose parents are college educated, they're growing their hair long, they're doing drugs, they're protesting the Vietnam War, etc. But among more working-class white young people, you had a trend, you know, you had a, a layer of people that they called greasers, right? The guys would layer, wear leather jackets and drive motorcycles and they would, you know, slick their hair back, you know, and they were tough and they were right wing. They were conservative, you know, they were patriotic. They liked the military. They didn't like the hippies, thought they were traitors, etc. And Greece at the time that it came out was very much, it was about that. It's like, okay, we did the hippie musical hair. We did Hair, the hippie musical. Now we got Greece, which is for the working class youth. And what I mean, in Greece, they're working on cars. They're learning to be auto mechanics, right? And, um, you know, they're trying to fit in. And, you know, they're friends in high school. They're going to stay friends forever. It's very much, it's, it's you know, not I'm going to go to New York City and become a hippie. And I'm going to, you know, morally have moral angst about the Vietnam War. It's I'm going to work on a car. And I've got this small town life. And, you know, I'm, it, it's small town conservative America, right, is what it really is, right? And it's the other side. It's like, okay, among American young people, among middle class white kids, you got the hippies. But among more working class, the children of factory workers, you know, you know, the children of recent immigrants in a lot of cases, the children of, of you know, immigrants from Italy, the children of immigrants from Eastern Europe, uh, you know, you got, you know, you got you know, John Travolta, you got guys with leather jackets and, you know, and it's, that's what it's about. And that's what the musical is about. The, the 1950s, you know, and it's not from the fifties. It came out in like 1969, 1970. And it's supposed to be the anti-hair is what it's supposed to be. Um, and it's quite dirty. It's quite, you know, I mean, it's quite, it's about sex. It's pretty frankly about sex. Um, it's these teenagers that are being sexual with one another and, you know, trying to figure out, trying to figure themselves out as teenagers, as they, as they, you know, sing rock and roll songs or something, people compare it to an after school special in a lot of ways. It's, it's moralizing. Um, but the movie version of Greece, which is far more popular than the play ever was the play of Greece was not very popular, but the movie version 
is a completely different can of worms. Now, the, mu the movie version of Greece comes out in 1978, the Carter administration. And it's very much setting the stage for the Reagan revolution. Um, the, the movie version of Greece is very much, it's an attempt to reinvent the 1950s. The 1950s were the good old days when, you know, people knew right and wrong, when men were tough and they weren't wimpy. Uh, you know, it, that's what it's about. And it's weird because, you know, um, it's not like the 1950s at all. It's supposed to take place in the 1950s, but it's not the 1950s. Uh, you know, it's very, you know, the language that people are using is not of the era. You know, it's, it's, it's making cultural references to the 1950s, but it's remembering the 1950s as a time that was much more sexually tolerant. I mean, in the 1950s, there was, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, they talk about the Dick Van Dyke show. There was like a couple, a man and a woman, you know, they didn't even have the same bed on TV because they thought it was too suggestive for them to have a, a, a large bed so when they showed their bedrooms. When they showed this married couple's bedroom, uh, they had two separate beds. But it's re-remembering re the 50s to a period of, you know, bad boys, you know, leather jackets and everything's safe and, and there's no moral ambiguity and people can just kind of enjoy life. And it's kind of trying to, to play up, you know, the memories of people that, you know, part of the Reagan revolution is this idea that the 1960s ruined everything, right? The 1960s, the cultural revolution of the 60s ruined everything. We got to go back to the good old days. We got to go back to the good old days. Um, and Greece, 1978, the music, the movie version, is very much part of that. It's this nostalgic remembrance of the 1950s when men were men and women were women and no one had to, to worry about anything. And, uh, you know, um, of course, teenagers hate their, their teachers and, and uh, there's irreverence on the part of the youth, but it's not like the 1950s rebellion. Um, that's what that's about. And that's about something completely different. It's about something completely different. And you can see that there's even, you know, for the movie version of Greece, uh, they wrote this whole song that's not in the original. This, you know, Greece is the word that it has an odd sprinkling of 1960s themes in it, right? 1960s is all about the generation gap. That's a big theme in hair, the generation gap and all of that. And you see that in the, in, in the theme song they wrote for the movie, you know, Greece is the word, Greece is the way we we're feeling. It's got this element of like, we're the youth rebelling against our parents, which again, was not part of the, not very much, not part of the original, I would say. I mean, the youth were certainly irreverent and sarcastic and they were kind of bad boy rebels, but it wasn't the same. There's elements of, you know, elements of that, you know, plane breaker. I have, I have a whole stream back, I, back last year where I talk about Rocky horror picture show in great detail. So I'm not going to do that again on this stream, but you know, that that's more or less what they're saying. And it's, it's interesting to see that. And again, you know, the, you know, they talk about the hard hat riots, you know, where these construction workers went out and beat up hippies, you know, Nixon. And then with the Reagan revolution, it was very much, you know, back in the fifties, we had our innocence back in the fifties, things were good. So that's what I can say about Greece um, and how the Broadway show is completely different than the, the musical um, or than the movie. Um, I also wanted to mention that Rent. Now, Rent was a big musical. Uh, it was in like the early 2000s, I believe. It was a big musical. Um, Rent is it, it's inspired by the Tompkins Square riots. 
which were in the 1980s. Uh, a lot of the anarchists and punks, a lot of homeless people lived in Tompkins Square on the Lower East Side, and they cleared out like homeless encampments. Um, and there was rioting. And rent is more or less supposed to be like a, a fictionalization of some Lower East Side counterculture figures um, that are around at the time of something like the Tompkins Square riots. Um, and it's during the AIDS crisis, and they're poor, and they're like social nonconformists, a trans person, um, a rock musician, a, an aspiring filmmaker. They're living together, and they're very poor, and they don't have any money. And there's a bunch of homeless people that are, you know, that are being terrorized by the NYPD. There's like a riot that breaks out at one point. And it's more or less, um, it's kind of, I see Rent a little bit different. So Hair is very much counterculture and very dark and pessimistic. Rent is a similar, it's got these kind of bohemian themes. But Rent, more than anything, is like a condemnation of the heartlessness of American society. It's coming at things from a di very different direction. I don't see Rent as pessimistic. It's showing very dark themes like people dying of HIV, uh, you know, like people being insensitive to others, like, you know, crushing the homeless people. It's showing these dark things, but it's saying that, that we can do better. It's aspiring to higher truth. Um, I see Rent as, uh, Rent is very much, it's, it's anti-Nietzschean. Uh, it's, it's taking a stance. West Side Story. All right. That's a super chat. We'll write that down. Um, it, it's very anti-Nietzschean. Um, and it's very, it's very anti Ayn Rand and it's very anti, anti free market. It's saying that we have kind of a heartless society and that we're people that strive for something better in human beings. I, I see rent in a positive light, um, as much as the themes of it, you know, I mean, again, it's about rather dark things. It's about people, you know, living on the margins of society. It's really about lumping the lumping proletariat more than anything. I mean, but but it's it's elements of these kind of you know lumpen artists and lumpen elements of society, sex workers, heroin addicts, you know, uh, you know, uh, LGBT folks. Before that was more widely accepted, living on the margins of society and condemning American society for its cruelty and indifference. Um, you know, I think the what is it the one of the big songs we're living in America at the end of the millennium. It, it's quite powerful. Uh, you know, and it's it's kind of a condemnation of the immorality of the United States um, and, and the hypocrisy of U.S. society, the richest country in the world, allowing people to be hungry. Um, and yes, it is inspired. It, it's supposed to be a modernization of the opera La Boheme. That is true. Even the characters are the same, etc. Um, but anyway, so, you know, that's um, that's that's kind of what I wanted to say about that. Um, you know, uh, I think. Um, I'll mention West Side Story now. Just I'll mention it now uh, since since you asked about it. I don't want to get back to Broadway shows when we get back into the Q&A. I just want to talk about other stuff during the Q&A. So we'll talk about West Side Story since someone super chatted about it. It's interesting because my wife and I, we went to see the movie, the newest movie version of West Side Story. And the newest movie version of West Side Story that just came out, um, and it was it was written by the guy who did Angels in America. I forget what his name is, but... Uh, it was hyper political and it was in some ways it was cringe politically. Um, you know, West Side Story, a Puerto Rican gang, an Italian gang are fighting each other. It's a Romeo and Juliet. 
you got some of the 1950s um, juvenile delinquents, right? In the 1950s, there's a wave of juvenile crime. The economy in the USA is very good, but you still have all these young people that are going out and robbing people and stealing things. Why is this happening? Um, you know, it's about immigrant communities and ethnic communities. It's about urban poverty, et cetera. That's what it's about. The, the latest version, the movie version, I think you can see it on Netflix, uh, is highly, highly politicized. And at one point, you know, in the, in the original one, the two gangs are supposed to be, you know, it's plague on both your houses. The Puerto Rican gang and the Italian gang are both gangs. And why can't they all get along? These are two ethnic communities. Why can't they all just get along? Why do they have to tear each other apart over this gang stuff? The new one, it's very clear. The white Italian gang are the bad guys. The Puerto Rican gang are the good guys. That's very clear. At one point, the leader of the Italian gang starts giving a speech about the Great Replacement. I, I kid you not. They're the leader of the Italian gang. They're trying to make him out to be Richard Spencer. Um, they make the Puerto Rican gang into Puerto Rican nationalists. They're like singing Puerto Rican nationalist anthems. Um, at one point, uh, the uh, the police officer, the police are blatantly favoring the white Italian gang and going after the Puerto Rican gang. Um, so the, you know, the, the white Italian gang are supposed to be Richard Spencer and the racist police have their back and the Puerto Ricans gang are supposed to be freedom fighters against racism, you know, that are, and, and that's not in the original play. I mean, it's just not okay. I mean, it's two warring groups and it's playing on both your houses, but in the new version, one is good and one is bad. That's very, very clear. And there's much more of a political element to it. And then also in the, um, in the original musical, there is kind of a, a tomboy girl, a girl who's kind of a tomboy uh, who is, you know, I forget what her name is, but she's she's just kind of a character. She's a minor character who's, you know, she's a girl who's in the gang uh, with the boys in the in the movie, in the new movie version. They made her a, a trans, a trans man. Basically, she's a, a trans man. Um, and they showed like the police brutalizing her for being a trans man, et cetera. I mean, it's in the, in the new version, they, they made it hyper-political. It's a, it's a woke, you know, it's a woke piece. Um, and again, not talking about class struggle, but again, talking about white privilege, talking about trans oppression, not that these things aren't important. People should talk about these things, you know, and it is true that probably, you know, I mean, is it pot, you know, I mean, a lot of Puerto Rican groups that are criminal have some kind of roots. You talk about Latin Kings and stuff. They have some kind of roots to some kind of nationalist something, not always, but sometimes. And it's also true that the police might favor, you know, a, a white criminal organization over, over a black one. There's a long history of that with the Aryan brotherhood and the prisons, et cetera. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, at, at the point, at the beginning of the film, when I was watching the leader of the Italian gang, give a speech that sounded like, uh, Sounded like, you know, the great replacement or whatever. This is the 1950s, okay? That, that's, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm sorry. That's just, you know, there were, there were plenty of racists in the 1950s, but they weren't pushing great replacement conspiracy theories at that point. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's particularly, you know, it's particularly, I don't know. I, I just, you know, whatever. I actually, um, you know, the, the guy who wrote um, Angels in America, I cannot remember his name. Uh, he's like a, an Obama apologist. He's a notorious Obama apologist. Um, and he's one of the main, you know, voices. He writes plays and films that are apologetics for Obama and his Lincoln movie. I remember I was so excited when Steven Spielberg's Lincoln movie came out. Um, and 
and I walked out of the theater. I'm like, how did they take a play about the second American revolution, about the struggle to abolish slavery and turn it into a boring movie about men making speeches? Um, but they did. And the message of, of that was basically just tone it down. Just tone it down, guys. Just tone it down. That was the message is that the abolitionists are so radical. They're hurting. Abraham Lincoln has a strategy. Give Lincoln a chance to just work his great strategy out and he'll abolish slavery. I'm sorry, but it's just like, you know, if you watch, I mean, it's hard to forgive him for that movie because, I mean, the only fun scene in it was Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, when Tommy Lee Jones is playing, um, is playing Thaddeus Stevens, he gives like an epic speech, you know, you know, yelling at some pro-slavery Southern congressman. That's pretty cool. Uh, but other than that, it's like they, they took a movie about one of the most dramatic events in American history, the overturning of slavery. And there's one battle scene at the beginning of the film where Lincoln is, is speaking to a group of black soldiers afterwards. There's like an ugly battle scene and Lincoln is speaking to a group of, 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 of black soldiers. And then it just ends. Uh, and then the rest of the movie is just Lincoln, you know, is a bunch of white men making speeches. And it's like, you know, and then the abolitionists, you know, Thaddeus Stevens and others are portrayed as being too radical. They're just too radical. And they're making Lincoln's job too hard. And if they would just tone it down, Lincoln could get his film. I mean, it, that's, and it, I'm sorry, but it was the radicalism that won the war. I mean, the problem, the reason that the Civil War didn't go so well at the beginning was Lincoln was reluctant. And it was actually, um, I've never seen that. I've never seen Come From Away, Lily. Um, um, you know, it was actually, Lincoln got more radical and that's how he was able to win. When he made Harriet Tubman a leader of the military and sent her to go liberate plantations. You know, when he, he brought Ulysses S. Grant into the leadership of the army. Uh, you know, when he, uh, when he, you know, started, when he passed the Emancipation Proclamation and, and freed the slaves in the, in the Southern states. And, uh, you know, in so many ways, um, you know, it was Lincoln becoming more radical that won the war. It wasn't Lincoln toning it down. So the message of the film is just way off, just way off. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I mean, that was written by the guy who did West Side Stories. That's what I wanted to talk about. But anyway, the point is, back to the original point, back to the original point. <laughs> If you, if you really want to dig into art, you need to try and understand the context in which the art is made. What is the political atmosphere? Not in the time that it takes place, but in the time the art is being produced. And based on that, what is the film or the musical or the novel saying? That's what you need to understand, right? You analyze Dracula, you got to talk about Victorian England, you got to talk about the oppression and economic domination and colonization and domination of Eastern Europe by British imperialism. You got to talk about sexual repression. I mean, that's, then you can understand Dracula, right? If you want to talk about West Side Story, you have to talk about the 50s. You have to talk about, um, you know, the beginnings of anti-racism, you know, and this feeling that we should get over ethnic bigotry, juvenile crime, juvenile delinquency being a national story. Then you can understand West Side Story. You want to understand hair. You have to understand the new left as opposed to the old left. You have to understand, you know, the the Malthusianism and anarcho-primitivism and Project MK Ultra and pushing drug use, etc. Want to understand Greece? You have to understand working-class blowback to the hippies, the 1960s. You want to understand Oklahoma? You have to understand the beginning of the Great Depression and how there was this, you know, happy days are here again. We're going to pull together. You want to understand the sound of music? You have to understand the country coming out of the nightmare of McCarthyism and how friends had turned in their friends and how conformity let it happen. 
Um, you know, uh, you got to understand these things. You really do. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how important. If you want to understand a work of art, you have to, first of all, you have to actually read the thing. You can't base it on what it's about. You have to go actually bite into it. You have to actually sit there. You have to think, when was this created? What was the political atmosphere in which it was created? And then on top of that, what is it saying? What is it saying? How does it make me feel? That's a very important question when you talk about art. How does it make me feel? Right? Do I come out of this feeling good? Do I come out of this feeling bad? Do I come out of this? What does it make me want to do? That's a really good question when you're, when you're working at a piece of art. Because I've, I've used this example many times. V for Vendetta was one of the most revolutionary movies that came out during the Bush years. That movie, at the time that it came out, to say what it said, it was an FU to the neocons, and it was a call for revolution in the streets against the police state, against anti-Islamic bigotry, against the, the Christian right and the, the evangelicals that were the base. V for Vendetta was a call for insurrection. It was go out and sacrifice for what's right, stand up to the police state, don't trust the mass media. And the way it ended with that final scene of V for Vendetta, I cannot watch the clip of that without getting into tears. It is so amazing. V for Vendetta. And yes, Natalie Portman at the time was a huge supporter of Israel. Yes, that's true. And yes, at the time that it was made and left adventurism, it's promoting left adventurism. And we as Marxists do not believe in left adventurism. We believe only the people are the makers of history, that some violent act by an individual is not going to inspire a mass revolt. But that's not the point. The point is it's portraying a society where in the name of religion and the name and in the name of protecting people from terrorism, LGBT folks are being oppressed. Muslims are being oppressed and um, and the working people are being robbed and mass media is brainwashing them to support it all. And the answer is people going out and sacrificing and taking a risk. V for Vendetta. I, I mean, and the, the communists dropped the ball at the end of with V for Vendetta. I swear. All they said about it was, oh, left adventurism, anarchism isn't the answer, left adventurism, we need a mass movement, we don't just need one hero. It's like, they're missing the point. You see V for Vendetta, and it's like, wow, like, you want to go out, I mean, it was explosive. And what was going on at that time was the Bush administration had, and the neocons and the Bush administration had screwed up things for U.S. imperialism around the world, and so... Europe was furious with them, and a section of the geostrategic wing of the, of the ruling class was furious with them, and they were trying to foment you know, opposition to the neocons because they had screwed things up, and they wanted to replace them with Obama's faction, which is more geostrategic, and etc. And so they were fomenting revolt against the, uh, against the Obama administration, uh, or against the Biden administration, and setting the stage for Obama. And that film, I mean, it was right on point with, with many, many things. I mean, that if you want to talk about a movie that was politically on fire. Well, there's another movie. I think it came out in like 2004 that leftists love because it's politically correct that I don't like. Wind That Shakes the Barley. Wind That Shakes the Barley. You watch Wind That Shakes the Barley and it is absolutely, there is not a single thing in the film I disagree with politically, right? It's about the Irish freedom struggle how the national bourgeoisie of Ireland sold out the working class, 
Um, you know, how the, the Irish freedom struggle was betrayed by the free staters, um, how the Catholic church also betrayed the Irish revolutionaries, um, you know, how, um, you know, the revolutionaries, you know, started fighting the British and then got betrayed and had to fight, you know, the compradors in their own ranks. Um, it's about how, how ugly revolution is and that revolution is not, a dinner party and how, you know, I mean, you know, they, you know, I mean, there's some pretty grim stuff about, you know, having to execute traitors, you know, there's like, you know, like a teenage boy who like they find out as an informant and they execute him. And then the guy has to go tell his mother that he's executed his son for being an informant, uh, you know, and, you know, torture. And it shows the ugly side of revolution. I don't disagree with the movie at all. I do not disagree with when that shakes the barley at all, but I don't like it. Because what do you feel like doing after you go see Wind That Shakes the Barley? I don't know, maybe committing suicide? I mean, it's like the most dark, there is no hope, the revolution's been betrayed, we're back where we started, the revolutionaries turn into the oppressors, we're back at square run. I mean, I'm all about the Irish freedom struggle, but that movie, and it won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and it was made by a Trotskyite, Ken Loach. And Ken Loach, they've viciously gone after him, claimed he's anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Semitic. He's just a Trotskyite. He's pro-Palestine. And Ken Loach, you know, I, I'm not for canceling him. He has the right to be, you know, pro-Palestine. But it's it's a common theme. Almost all of his movies are like that. It's the revolution's betrayed. It's hopeless. There is no point. It's this middle class, you know, and, you know, he, he made a movie that's inspired by George Orwell's book about the Spanish Civil War that has that theme. And that's definitely not what happened during the Spanish Civil War. And um, I mean, the wind that shakes the barley, I don't like it. Right. Even though politically it's more correct politically than V for Vendetta. Right. V for Vendetta is promoting left adventurism and individualism, not a mass movement. V for Vendetta is not raising the class question so much as opposition to a police state and you know but v for vendetta is how you should feel after seeing a revolutionary work of art you should walk out of the theater feeling the way i felt when i walked out of the theater right we need movies about the class struggle that make you walk out of the theater feeling like you like you did when you walked out of v for vendetta and we don't need movies that you walk out of the theater feeling like the way you feel when you walk out of uh you know um the, of um of the wind that shakes the barley because you just feel like shit, you know? Um, and the same with land and freedom, the movie about Spain, the same with a lot of Ken Loach movies. You end up walking out of there feeling like shit. Okay. Politic, the, the, the surface level politics are correct, but the emotions, what it inspires you to do. No one wants to become a revolutionary and an activist after watching wind that shakes the barley. You want to, you, know, you want to go home and die after you watch Wind That Shakes the Barley. Whereas Viva Vendetta makes you want to go out and struggle. It makes you want to go out and fight. It makes you feel like we can win, like it's all worth it and all that. Viva Vendetta, that's some good stuff. That's some good stuff. So anyway, those are my opening remarks for tonight. I think every so often it's good to just do one of these where I just talk about works of art. We mainly talked about Broadway shows tonight, but we touched on Dracula and we touched on, uh, you know, V for Vendetta versus Wind That Shakes the Barley. And, you know, every so often it's good to just talk about these things. So thanks everybody for that. Um, and so now we'll do the roll call and I'll call you out as I see you names and locations, names and locations. And then I know Don D is going to send me the super chats and I'll start answering your super chat questions. So that's how it's going to work. So welcome everybody. Uh, names and locations, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. 
and we'll go from there. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? We got Bergen County, Christian. Woo, welcome, Christian, from New Jersey. Very good. We got Wavy Particle in Seattle. AG from Port Huron. We got Melbourne, Australia. Clyde, Joshua Tree, California, Kinky. Stephen in Riverside County, California. Jason Hunt in Chicago. Smedley Butler. Don from Pueblo, California. Jamie Nix in St. Paul. Dave in San Jose. Antonio from New York. Very good. We got Steve and Ann Ringold in Georgia. Out down in Georgia. We got Lily also in Georgia. You're not the only one in the state, Lily. Steve and Ann Ringold are also in Georgia. Marissa in Washington State. We got Orange, Duke County, Jenny Lynn in Cincinnati, South Florida, LC, West Virginia, Adam from Salt Lake City, uh, Don D in NYC. Welcome, Don. Thanks for the super chat, writing them down. I do appreciate it. Powell from Canada, Nassau County, Char Char Darling. Very good stuff. Isaac from, Van, uh, from Vancouver, Enoch from Australia, Christine from Australia. Good friend of what we're doing here. Corona, California, Space Communist. San Diego County, Richard Dave, Arthur in Nova Scotia, Allen in Chicago, Jill in Idaho. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, 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 everybody. Names and locations, I will call you out. Yada Yisrol in Chicago, Jill in Idaho. Oh, we already did that. All righty. Welcome, everybody. Ash in Chicago. We got Ash in Chicago, Corona County, Space Communist. Good stuff, folks. Names and locations. I'll take a few more. Names and locations. Always a pleasure, folks. Always a pleasure. Names and locations. Who is with us? Names and locations. Names and locations. Kieran from San Diego. Washington. Luke from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, the Andromeda Solar System. Mo and Danielle in Pomona, California. Steve in Brisbane, Australia. Very, very, very good. Very, 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 very good. Micah in Las Vegas, I see. Bradley Wasser, Stephen in Brisbane, Australia. Luke in Madison, Wisconsin is with us. Mark from Kansas. Che Guevara in New Mexico. Danny from Lakewood, Colorado. All right. Very, very good. All right. So do I have my super chat questions yet? Just seeing if my super chats are coming. Seeing if Don has sent me my super chats yet. Just waiting for that. And so we'll keep taking names and locations. Uh, we got uh, anybody else? We got Montreal. Very good. Montreal. Um, we got um, my ex lives in Lakewood. We got Brazil. Very, very good. We got Danny in Lakewood, Colorado. So there we go. We got Balthazar. Damn, that's twice. Damn, that's twice. Oh, maybe it's just once, right? We got UK Brumley from Kent. Um, very, very good. Should be there, Don says. That's interesting. Did it go to my spam? Oh, here are the super chat questions. Very good. Very, 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 very good. Um, all right. All right. Um, okay, so we're going to cut and paste the super oh we're going to cut and paste the super chats i'll be adding to them as we go along so we've got more super chats you can always add them to the list i'll be writing them down from here forward um thank you don for taking them down and uh very very good all right 
Um, one of them is from last week. Um, so it's about Che Guevara, but we'll start out. Um, Christian is asking, capitalists talked of five, 10-year, 20 plans at the World Planning Congress of 1931. Was that rhetoric? What did they want to plan? Well, as you are aware, when there is a capitalist crisis, um, the capitalists try their hardest to stabilize their system. Um, and they would like to stabilize their system without changing property relations. And that's a little bit impossible because as long as you have production organized for profit, you're going to have the irrationality of profits in command. But there's going to be an attempt with the use of the state to overcome that. And the capitalists have done that many, many times. They've tried to overcome the problems of their system by having state planning. Roosevelt, National Industrial Recovery Act, um, you know, you can talk about you know, in Britain, after the Second World War, you had a higher rate of state ownership. I think it was about the same rate of state ownership as in the Soviet Union. But it didn't matter because it was all about facilitating British imperialism. It was about facilitating the make of, making of profits by British mega corporations that were dominating the planet. It wasn't socialism because socialism is production organized for public good, not profits. If the state is heavily involved, but it's still production organized for profit, that's still, um, still capitalism, right? And during the National Industrial Recovery Act of the United States, and yes, you talk about these world planning congresses, there was an attempt to stabilize capitalism, but they still wanted production to be organized for profit, and that's fascism, for example. In Mussolini's Italy, they claimed they were getting beyond capitalism, right? Because, oh, we have these cor the corporate state where there you have the, the corporate or you have the, the government minister and the trade union and the factory owner all working together for the good of the nation. It's still production for profit. That factory owner is still making profits. So at the end of the day, it's still production organized for profit. It's not state central planning. It's just an attempt to stabilize capitalism with a super state. Um, and that happens when capitalism enters a severe crisis. However, in order to have that kind of planning, capitalists have to crush other capitalists, right? You have to have some capitalists getting controlled and some capitalists doing the planning. And that's what the basis of Bonapartist struggles within the ruling class are, because the capitalist who's getting crushed doesn't want it, and the capitalist who's doing the planning wants it and wants the planning to be to his benefit. Um, and this is this is something that happens in a Bonapartist time. And you know you have you know in the Asian tigers, for example, those are highly controlled economies. They are for-profit capitalist economies, but the state is very heavily involved. Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, the government is heavily involved in the economy. However, it's still production organized for profit. And that's, you know, Bonapartism, and that's one section of the ruling class. Saudi Arabia is another example. Um, that's an attempt to control capitalism, but it still has problems of overproduction. It still has gluts. It still has unemployment. It has all these problems because it's still production organized for profit. It's planning for the benefit of capitalists, and some capitalists get crushed. You don't have fair competition when that happens. That's why libertarians tend to oppose that kind of thing. Um, you don't really have fair competition. You have the state favoring some capitalists over others. Um, and that's what that is. And it doesn't solve the problem. Nazi Germany could not overcome the problems of capitalism. Uh, Italian fascism could not overcome the problems of capitalism. Uh, you still have instability, even though you have a super state attempting to stabilize it. As long as production is organized for profit, you can't really have planning. You can try, though. But there you go. All right. And this was a super chat missed from last time. Was Che Guevara... Uh, what did Che Guevara and Juan Perón think of each other? Was Che a judicialist? Um, at the time of Juan Perón's, uh, I'm sorry, at the time of Che Guevara's death, Juan Perón was more pro-Che Guevara than the Argentine Communist Party was. I think the Argentine Communist Party 
denounced Juan Perón or denounced Che Guevara as a left adventurist, but Juan Perón said that Che Guevara was one of the greatest Peronists who ever lived. And Juan Perón was an Argentine nationalist, very proud of Argentina's heritage. He said that Fidel Castro was a Peronist. And Peronism is a very interesting kind of populist, anti-imperialist, but not full-on Marxist, um, you know, um, not full-on Marxist. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, you know, um, not full-on Marxist, anti-imperialist, but you know, trying to build some kind of vaguely anti-capitalist working class movement against imperialism. I've interviewed Dakota Lilly before. He's an expert on Peronism. He wrote, he's a Marxist, a uh, member of Students and Youth for a New America, went on the Tucker Carlson show, and he actually wrote his thesis on Peronism and what it means. And there's a lot to learn from Juan Peron. I think Juan Peron achieved a lot for the people of Argentina, and you can't dismiss Juan Peron. Oh, you know, not a Marxist. You know, Argentina didn't go all the way to socialism, so no good. No, there's plenty to learn from there. And that he was very pro-communist, very sympathetic to Mao, very sympathetic to Fidel Castro in Cuba, but a mixed bag, right, ideologically. I mean, he, he was talking about the international synarchy conspiring against him. Che was pro-Peron at the beginning before he became a Marxist. That's true. Um, and, you know, and Juan Peron incorporated elements of Guevara, you know, into his thought. That's pretty clear, and he admired Che Guevara. Um, but I don't think it would be fair to say that Che was a Peronist per se, right? Um, that you know, and I remember when I was in our um, when I was in Ecuador, um, I remember I went to the literature table of the the JP, the Young Peronists. They had this poster of Hugo Chavez and Juan Peron holding hands. I mean, it's not a photograph because they didn't live at the same time. It's like a painting they got. And I remember talking to the young Peronists, and I said, wasn't Juan Peron a fascist? Because that's what I've been told. And they said, no, Juan Peron was one of the greatest communists who ever lived. And I thought, that's interesting. But Peron was a, a populist, and he fought for the working class. He aligned with socialist countries. I mean, he never really brought Argentina to full socialism. Um, and there are instances of him being blatantly anti-communist. Property relations never changed. Um, but he may have aspired to do that. There were times in his life where he sounded like he was aspired to do that. And that's what you have to remember about this kind of Bonapartism, especially in the developing world. You know, if you have Bonapartism, there's a fight in the ruling class and some leader is fighting for the working class and the imperialists are coming after them. He's going to become more and more dependent on the working class to have his back. This is what Che Guevara said, that the... The national bourgeoisie is too weak to fight the imperialists on their own. Um, and because of that, they become dependent on the working class to have their back. And that requires them to enter an alliance with the working class. And that in a lot of cases, you'll have bourgeois nationalist figures who get the attacked by the imperialists and find themselves having no choice but to move into the working class camp. And Baathism in the Arab world is a great example of that. I think there were a lot of bourgeois nationalist figures who wanted to use Baathism as just a way to be a bourgeois nationalist, but but as they became under attack, as they fought the imperialists, they moved their country towards socialism, um, and that happened. Um, and I think the Iranian Revolution, you know, I wouldn't. They don't call it socialism. Um, they don't call it socialism, uh, but you know, they they changed property relations. They overcame capitalism very clearly uh, during the Iraq Iran War when they you know they had the uh, the construction jihads and they built the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to be the essential part of the economy and started building up state controlled banks and state controlled factories and you know the Basij councils if you look at the way Iran is Iran is not capitalist they don't call it socialism but it was so you know it was uh, uh, breaking from capitalism 
was forced on Iran by the circumstances they were in. There was no way that the Islamic Republic could have stayed intact if they didn't, you know, you know, basically break capitalist property relations and set up set up an alternative economic system. And they, you know, they had brutally crushed a lot of communists, but that didn't change the fact they were still up against the U.S. imperialists and and you know, fighting for their lives and had built a populist, you know, mass populist movement of the oppressed to come to power. And there's many examples of this, right? And that, that you know, Juan Perón is an example of kind of a, a leader who depends on the working class, maybe at some points even aspires to go to socialism, but never changes property relations. Gaddafi changed property relations. Libya became a socialist country, I believe. Um, but there you go. Do you think the U.S. would have went into Iraq if the USSR had been around? Would USSR and been All righty. Next question. Could the real estate industry be described as inward imperialism? Um, no, I wouldn't call it that. Um, it's just simply right now what's going on is that housing is being bought up by big banks. Rand Paul, I believe I already we already did that one, didn't we? Uh, isn't that already on the list? Uh, Rand Paul. Um, Okay. I mean, that's not a question. That's just a statement. All right. Um, but anyway, um, um, could the real estate industry be described as inward imperialism? No. Imperialism is the export of capital. It's corporations based in the Western countries dominating the global economy. The domination of the globe by trusts, cartels, and syndicates, a global system of exploitation. That's what imperialism is. Um, what's going on now with the fact that it used to be a lot of American workers could have their own home, their own little piece of property, and now they're having to rent their homes from big banks. Um, you know, that's not, I wouldn't call it inward imperialism. It's just the fact that, you know, the labor aristocracy is being demolished and property had a lot to do with the labor aristocracy. It wasn't just that these people got higher wages, it's that they were able to own a piece of land. You know, they were able to own their own piece of land. Um, that was a very big part of the labor aristocracy in the 1950s. The idea that, you know, sure, you're a worker, but you own some property. So when the communists say they want to abolish private property, they want to take your house away from you, right? Um, and that yeah, as we move away from a labor aristocracy in the United States, as the working class is being, you know, as the, as the you know, higher living standards of the industrial working class and the homeland are being demolished, uh, we're seeing, you know, the abolition of the ability of workers to own property, right? So there you go. Joe Paradise asks, theory is necessary and good, but Caleb's analysis of art, literature, and pop culture is my favorite. Well, Joe, the reason I do it is because this is one thing BreadTube got right. I will say this. The only thing that BreadTube has ever gotten right. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but they've realized that if you want to explain Marxist concepts to people, you have to talk about movies. You have to talk about movies. You have to talk about literature, stuff like that. That's the best way to explain stuff to people. People will hear you. I don't know. People consume so many movies and they consume so many books, etc. Um, there's a bunch of think tank yuppies on MSNBC portraying an attack on China, silly and provocative. All right. MSNBC. Okay. 
I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how you can talk to people is with, uh, with analysis of art. I mean, that's really the best way to talk to people, uh, because we consume so much art nowadays. People watch so much TV, people watch movies, you know, it's really want to get people to understand a concept. People learn through stories as Orange Duke is saying, people learn through stories. That's a good way of putting it. So there you go. All right. Um, you should check out an anime called Gurren Lagan. It's all about historical materialism, progress, and humanity's triumph over Malthusianism. I've never heard of that. I don't generally like much anime. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really into anime. It's not my thing. But there you go. Uh, thanks for the recommendation. Maybe there will be a time where I'll do that. So, can you tell us about Alexandra Kalantai? Well, she was a Bolshevik. Um, Sri Lanka. All right. We're talking about Sri Lanka. All right. Uh, she was a Bolshevik. Um, she lived in New Jersey, and she was anti-war. Um, she was an activist who lived in New Jersey. Uh, she was of Russian heritage, uh, but she had immigrated to New Jersey, and she was a socialist, and she was opposed to World War One. And she, I think she was arrested, if I'm not mistaken, because during World War One, she was going around giving lectures and classes about why, why World War One wasn't right, and why, as a socialist, you should oppose it. Um, after the Bolshevik revolution, she went back to Russia and joined the Bolsheviks. Uh, thank you, David. I appreciate it. After the Russian revolution, she went back to Russia and joined the Bolsheviks, um, which was pretty cool. Um, oh, uh, every MSN shiny object distraction has less sticking power in your opinion. What will be the ruling class's final attempt before it falls? I think it will be trying to convince us we're not starving, says Anna Mars. That's interesting. She's on Rockfin, by the way. You can always watch on Rockfin. I'm on Rockfin. Um, thank you, Anna Mars. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Who knows what it'll be before they, they fail. But Alexandra Kalantai, um, you know, she was, she was a Bolshevik feminist uh, who was dedicated to sexual liberation. Um, and she was very much focused on women's liberation, sexual liberation. Um, and uh, I believe at Lenin at one point denounced her ideas. Um, she was a alleged to have promoted the glass of water theory, the idea that in a socialist society, having sex will be as meaningless as drinking a glass of water. Um, and, um, um, and because of that, um, because of that, <clears throat> it, it was, um, because of that, um, you know, that, that's what they should be striving for. Lenin criticized her. Clara Zetkin quotes Lenin criticizing her. I believe she was in one of the opposition groups that was against Stalin, but then when she lost, she surrendered. She didn't keep fighting. And she died in the Holocaust, I believe. I think, you know, during the Second World War, uh, when um, the Nazis came into the Soviet Union, I think she ended up getting killed by the Nazis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that's Alexandra Kalante. And she's Today, she's kind of upheld as the symbol of sexual liberation, of the feminist side of the Bolsheviks, etc. Um, all right. Thank you, David Rennie, for your super chat. Um, Chaya says, news about Biden invading Somalia. Well, the USA has maintained a presence in Somalia for a really long time. Um, you know, the first Bush, he went in in 1992. 1993, Bill Clinton, you know, you know, continued that. And then you had the whole Black Hawk Mogadishu incident. Um, during the Bush years, Bush went into Somalia. Obama continued in Somalia, and he actually escalated with drone strikes. Trump withdrew U.S. troops from Somalia, but he continued the bombing campaign. Um, and then ultimately, uh, now Biden is going back in. And at the end of the day, what this is really about is maintaining a military presence on the Horn of Africa. 
the Horn of Africa is very strategic. It's very strategic, right? The Horn of Africa, it's right next to the Middle East, right? It's, it's, you know, you got North Africa, you got Egypt, you got Ethiopia, you got Djibouti, which is where the first Chinese military overseas base is located. Djibouti, I've actually been to Djibouti in my life. And uh, maintaining instability there, maintaining a huge U.S. military presence there. Sudan, Shia says, that's very important for U.S. imperialism. They're going to keep finding excuses to be there. And the last thing that they would ever want in Somalia is some kind of stable government, you know, some kind of stable anti-monopoly government anti-imperialist state to emerge. They'll never let that happen. They need instability to keep going on in Somalia. They really do. That's the only way they can maintain control of the Horn of Africa. And the fact that China's first overseas military base is there. I remember when I was in Djibouti, you know, I'd been on, you know, when I went on the ship to Yemen, I was on the ship to Yemen with the Red Crescent Society. We couldn't go to Yemen because the port was bombed. So we went to Djibouti. And the only place you can buy your airline tickets in cash in, in Djibouti is at the at the in in the uh, hotel that's inside the U.S. embassy compound. So we went to this hotel that was inside the U.S. embassy compound. We go into this hotel, and uh, we go in, uh, and all of a sudden, I've been in the Middle East. I've been hearing Middle Eastern accents. I've been in Africa. Djibouti is in Africa. All of a sudden, I go into the hotel and I hear West Virginia accents. What are there's a bunch of guys in you know military pants big, long, scraggly beards, they're Blackwater. I'm in the hotel, you know, I have a nice buffet, like a nice breakfast buffet at the hotel that we stayed at, you know, where we could, we could get our tickets to go back to, uh, go back to Iran. And we're listening to, uh, I'm, I'm hearing West Virginia accents. And those are uh, Blackwater guys. All those military contractors are all over Djibouti, are all over Somalia. You know, Blackwater, I think it's called Academy now. You know, I was hearing West Virginia accents in the lobby of the hotel. Uh, so there you go. I'll never forget that. That was fascinating to see. So there you go. Um, already did my whole take. Saverio, I did my whole take on West Side Story. I did that for you in the opening remarks. I have not seen Come Away, Lily. I apologize. I haven't seen it. Um, uh, uh, what are your opinions of the Shooter's Manifesto? Well, I haven't read it. Um, it's not like widely available. I've seen that he referred to himself as, quote, authoritarian left, but he was a racial separatist. Um, and the left is, I mean, leftism and racial separatism are incompatible. If you're advocating for the separation of the white race, you're not a leftist in any conceivable form. Uh, it's because of, you know, the libertarian element has convinced people that if you don't believe in total free market capitalism, you must be left wing, right? And this is the libertarian delusion, right? That the Nazis must have been socialists because they didn't believe in free markets. Well, they weren't socialists. Right, uh, the Nazis. It was it was corporatism, heavily controlled capitalism. The Nazis called themselves right wing. They referred to themselves as a right wing party over and over again. This guy was right wing, but he doesn't believe in the free markets. And in the United States nowadays, all that it means to be, you know, right wing is just that you worship capitalism. The right wing doesn't stand for anything but the worship of capitalism. So this guy, in his racism, I mean, he was an advocate of racism. He was racial separatist and he was definitely a racist but he apparently did want things like guaranteed health care etc so because of that he thought he couldn't be right wing so he's like well i'm the authoritarian left well no you're not you're not left i mean if you're going around this guy's goal was to kill black people uh, and kill them so much so that it would spark a race war there is nothing left wing about that the left 
is about tearing down racial divisions, getting working people to see what they have in common. And it is shocking to me that these bread tube liars somehow claim that this guy is saying that this guy is going around and saying that he wants to to intensify the culture war. He wants white people and black people at each other's throats. He wants conservatives and liberals at each other's throats. He's committing violent terrorism with the hope of intensifying a culture war. And somehow that makes him the same as me and Jimmy Dore and Peter Coffin because we don't want to intensify the culture war because we want an economic struggle to bring people together. That is so much bullshit. Like, I'm sorry, this guy is literally murdering people to intensify the culture war. And we're going around saying we need to have an economic program to bring people together. There is absolutely nothing, nothing that we have in common, you know, but the bread tubers are so insane that if you're not on their side of the culture war, you must de facto be working for the other side, right? It's just like DSA. There was a guy in DSA, um, you know, uh, who I believe he was an African-American professor. Uh, and I, the New York Times did a story about it. He was an African-American professor who just wanted to give a speech where he said, okay, we talk about race a lot, but can we talk about class a little bit? And they're like, class reductionist, and they canceled his lecture. The synthetic left are so committed to inciting, inciting sections of the U.S. population against each other and trying to make sure that no real program emerges, and especially no anti-imperialist program emerges. They're insane. This guy... This guy and the synthetic left both want to just intensify the culture war. Now, this guy is on the, the side of privileged groups like white people attacking black people. So it's not the same, obviously. But his goal was to intensify the culture war. Whereas the genuine left, the non-synthetic left, is not trying to intensify the culture war. It's trying to bring working people together and overcome cultural and racial differences and regional differences on the basis of a unified economic program. And it is the synthetic left that's also trying to intensify the culture war. Now, they're not doing it by going around committing hate crimes. I'm not equating them. So no one say I'm equating them. But you can't say that those of us that are trying to get beyond things like culture wars are somehow the same as someone who's so committed to a culture war that they commit hate crimes in the hopes of fomenting culture wars. Um, that's insane. I mean, I mean, and that shows how vicious the bread tube people are, right? That if you don't agree with them, Somehow you are the same as a Nazi. Um, the guy said all kinds of crazy shit from what I understand. Some of it, you know, uh, you know, economic criticisms of capitalism, but most of it racial separatism. What did he do? He committed a hate crime. Did you hear about how the Israeli army, I did hear about it and I talked about it and that's awful. Anything to take away the dignity of the Palestinians, anything to, sh you know, shame the Palestinians, terrorize them. It's disgusting what Israel did at that, at that funeral. And, uh, you know, but it's not the first time they've done it. They often will attack the funerals of Palestinians and uh, that they've killed anything to just degrade the Palestinian people. Um, but you're not allowed to say that or you're else you're anti-Semitic. Did you know that? Right. You're not allowed to say that or else you're anti-Semitic, right? If you're criticizing Israel, not only murdering a journalist, but then, then pro then attacking the funeral procession of the journalist, then you must be anti-Semitic because anyone who says anything bad about Israel it's all just made up. It's all just made up. And uh, it's all just because everyone is in a big conspiracy to uh, persecute Jews. You know, I mean, it's like this is this is how we are told to think about these things. So, you know, I, I can't believe you're so anti-Semitic, Clyde, uh, that you would think that that Israel attacking the funeral of a uh, of a journalist, uh, you know, you know, is is a bad thing. 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I bet it didn't happen. You know, I bet the, the, um, the, the Palestinians hired, hired other Palestinians to dress up as police to stage it in order to make Israel look bad and to justify anti-Semitism. That's probably what happened, right? There's probably people in Brooklyn who believe that. I used to work at an insurance company with a lot of hardcore Zionists. If I said to them, you know, I heard that the Palestinians actually paid fake Israeli police actors to attack them, they would probably believe it, right? I'm so sick of media covering up for how stupid right-wing Zionists are. They are really stupid, and they say the dumbest shit, right? And I'm so... You know, you know, on TV, they always bring on the most articulate, you know, representative of Israel who makes it sound. But but, you know, go interview, go interview, you know, the the right wing Netanyahu supporters of Brooklyn. Right. And and interview these people I used to work with. You know, yeah, well, you know, they didn't actually attack the funeral of the it was it was totally staged. No, I got an email. I saw it. It was totally staged. It was Palestinians did it just to convince people they would believe something like that. They would actually believe something like that. Right. And, you know, any any negative thing about Israel is just a big hoax. It's all Pallywood. It's all Pallywood. It's all staged. It's it infuriates me. It really, really does. All right. Sky News of Australia is giving airtime to actual as of Nazi commanders stuck in Maripool steel factory. Yep. Are you shocked? Are you shocked? Right. You're an anti-Semite if you criticize Israel. But actual as of battalion Nazis like who actually tear down World War II memorials, who are actually committing hate crimes against Romas and, and taping them to telephone poles that are actually glorifying Hitler in World War II, well, they're, they're fine. I mean, it just shows you how ridiculous U.S. media can be, you know? Um, yeah, so there you go. Um, but there you go. Um, do you think the USA would have gone into Iraq if USSR had been around? This is one of those things where... First of all, I got to tell you, we don't know because for the USSR to have still been around, so much in the world would have had to be different, right? I'm trying butterfly effect here, right? It's like that short story where someone goes back in time and steps on a butterfly and they come back and the election results have changed or something like that. You cannot, you cannot do something like that. So for the USSR not to have fallen, okay? For the USSR not to have fallen, so many things about the USSR would have had to have been different. And then going forward, so many things in the world that changed because the USSR fell would have been different. I mean, look, the sanctions on Iraq would never have worked the way they did if it hadn't been for the fall of the USSR. The reason that Iraq got devastated in the 90s by sanctions, where people were dying because they couldn't get clean drinking water, was because there was no USSR, right? They couldn't get chlorine uh, to, uh, to purify their water because the USA said it might be a chemical, it might be a biological weapon or something. Well, you know, if the Soviet Union had been around, they could have just called up the Soviet Union and said, hey, Soviet Union, can we have some chlorine? And they said, they would have said, sure, sure you can. And it wouldn't have happened. So, you know, people forget that before the USA invaded Iraq, they, they devastated them for 10 years with sanctions and economic warfare. And my former boss, the great Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, he broke the law and he went to Iraq and violated those sanctions. And he had a press conference at the airport. And, you know, it was before 9-11 where you could do that. Before he went, the former U.S. Attorney General, he said, I have, I've got all kinds of medicine and I've got all kinds of medical supplies. I want you to arrest me. You come back and arrest me when I come back for feeding Iraqi children. And he heroically broke the law and brought medicine to Iraqis and brought, you know, food to Iraqis. And he broke the law heroically. 
Uh, you know, and that that's why the USA people say, well, you know, if, 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 if socialism in Iraq was strong, why did Saddam Hussein fall over? Because the USA blew the shit out of Iraq the first time in 1991. Then they had 10 years of economic devastation. They couldn't, you know, the Soviet Union had fallen. They couldn't import anything. No chlorine to purify their water. No airplane engine part. Nothing. They devastated the country for a decade. And then the USA invaded. And that's why Iraq fell so quickly. Um, you know, and, you know, I mean, that's how they were able to destroy Iraq. So, you know, no one talks about that. And that, that you know, that wouldn't have happened without the fall of the US. If the USSR had been around, they would have gotten chlorine, right? If the USSR had been around, you know, uh, I mean, and who's to say they would have been targeted in the same way, right? I mean, you can't do a hypothetical like this. The world, for the USSR to have not fallen, so much about the USSR would have been different. And then so much about the global and geopolitical situation in the 90s would have been different that to say, oh, and then in 2004, would the USA have invaded Iraq? I mean, at that point, who, who knows what could have happened, right? You can't go, what if this or what if that, because you don't know. Every event is intrinsically tied up with every other event. And that's why hypothetical, you know, what if, coulda, shoulda, woulda, this stuff doesn't work. And it's the same for your life. A lot of people sit there and they go, well, if only I had made this choice instead of that choice, you can't do that because you made that choice for a reason, right? And that's how people go crazy. They get caught up in, if only I had, no, no, you're missing the point. You did what you did because of the circumstances that you were in, you know, even if you didn't think about it very much and you were in circumstances where you didn't think, right? That you did what you did because of the circumstances you're in. So you can't really say, you know, um, you can't really say. So at the end of the day, you just can't really say. So there you go. MSNBC talking about invading an attack on China. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, that's pretty awful. The Republicans need to get over this idea that somehow Democrats are friends of China or something. That's ridiculous. The Democrats hate China just as much. It's a I mean, Republicans are, are, are not as hostile to Russia. Democrats may be slightly less hostile to China, but right now they hate them both. Biden's escalating against China. He just took uh, off the State Department website that the USA doesn't recognize, uh, you know, Taiwan's independence. Um, so, you know, he's escalating with China, if ever. And Russia and China are intrinsically economically connected at this point. They're, they're economically closely tied to each other. So there you go. All right. And Sri Lanka, yes, food crisis in Sri Lanka. Uh, it's largely tied in with the economic war against Russia. It's caused a food crisis in the country. The labor unions are in motion, um, but there also seems to be color revolution forces in motion. Um, the working class, the communists of Sri Lanka, you know, they have a, a, a following. But there's also, you know, there's also synthetic left and pro-imperialist forces. So there's a crisis in the country. That's pretty clear. And the crisis is rooted in the food crisis, which is caused by the U.S. imperialists and their attacks on Russia, et cetera, and the food prices and the fuel crisis. And, you know, the country is really suffering. The people are in a state of revolt. Um, we'll see what comes out of it. Um, but, uh, you know, there's different factors, but we will see ultimately what comes out of it. That's really all I can say. Um, you know, there's often many different forces contending in a situation like this. So, um, you know, and there are forces in Sri Lanka that want to be closer to China and Russia. And there are forces in Sri Lanka that want to be closer to uh, the United States. Um, you know, there are different agendas playing out. So we shall see. Um, yeah, and I guess that's where we're ending for tonight. Thanks, everybody. Upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism 
is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot.